Welcome to Capital Decanted. In this show, we say goodbye to tired market takes and superficial sound bites. Because here, instead of skimming the surface, we dive into the heart of capital allocation, striking the perfect balance and exposing the subtleties that reveal the topic's true essence. Prepare to have your perspectives challenged as we open up the issues that resonate with the hearts and minds of those shaping capital allocation. We've enlisted the wisdom of visionary leaders in the industry, and just like a meticulously crafted wine, will allow their insights to breathe, unfurling their hidden depths and transforming our understanding. This is season one, episode five of Capital Decanted. I'm John Bowman. And I'm Christy Hamilton. And we are your hosts. Huge thank you to our season one title sponsor, as always, Franklin Templeton Alternatives. With over 40 years of alt investing, $260 billion of asset center management, they've assembled and offered specialist investment managers across six different asset classes, private debt, hedge funds, real estate, infrastructure, private equity, and venture capital. And of course, all of them operate with the client-first mentality that has always defined Franklin Templeton to prioritize investment outcomes. So thanks so much, Franklin Templeton Alternatives. So Christy, this episode was just meant to happen. It was necessary fate. Necessary fate. That's probably a contradiction of terms, but it was certainly destined. I'm surprised we even got to episode five before recording our wine episode. Obviously, name. And then this is just such a fun and interesting topic. So I'm really excited to kind of jump into this one in particular. I learned a lot about wine in our preparation for this episode. So even more than just that, I like to drink it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did too. And I'm a wine drinker and a bit of a passionate lover of fermented grapes, as we say. So I think listeners, if you've not been with us or like us, if your short-term memory is maybe short to say the least, I think it bears repeating a little bit of our origin story because I think that origin story really, to some degree, brings to life why we found ourselves here. And the idea that led to creating Capital Decanted is somewhat being fully manifested in this episode and foreshadowing it. So we talked briefly about this origin story in our season one teaser video, but that's been a while. And many of you may not have even been listening to this podcast back then. But what we said at the time was that there were and there are brilliant and well-executed podcast formats that interviewed investment leaders in one-to-one -one formats. And some of our favorites there are good friend Ted Seides, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and then on the other side, there are captivating, engaging storytellers that can hold an audience with a narrative for an extended format. Speaking for myself, our favorites there are Acquired with David Rosenthal, Ben Gilbert, Founders with David Senra. Hardcore History is one of my new ones, by the way, and that is not for the lighthearted. You're talking four or five hours per episode. So when Christy and I started iterating on this idea is, is how do we enter this sea of podcasts in a way that's fresh and unique? and doesn't pretend like we need to recreate the wheel for these really talented show narrators. Our insight was that we wanted to mash up the storytelling arc of, the, of that latter group with the interview skills of the former. So we're not suggesting that we have anywhere near their capabilities yet, but the inspiration for this hybrid approach is that we thought by combining elements of what was working in those categories or subcategories, we thought we could fill an important gap. And that was to explore complex investment topics in more depth and more balance, and then combine that with a panel-type conversation with two leaders on the subject to bring it to life. So that was the inspiration, the insight that led to this show. So what does that have to do with wine? Well, that leads us to the title, 
And the metaphor decanted, capital decanted, was a combination of two different things. First, we wanted a relaxed, conversational, playful style, like if we were sitting in a wine bar on some couches. And second, the idea of more careful, nuanced discussion on challenging investment themes, this whole idea of respectful civic discourse, we felt was not only a lost art, but it reminded us of why you let your fine wines open up and have a space to breathe in a decanter. So there it is, capital decanted. So now you know, hopefully it's obvious, we had to do a wine investing episode with that origin story. And what better timing, we thought, than around the holidays, when most of us will be sitting around the table breaking bread with family and friends and drinking, as I said, luscious fermented grape juice. So here we are with our first annual holiday special, rightly so, on wine investing. So Christy, we're going to do this with our guests, which I will name in a few minutes as we always do. But I thought we would start with a little bit of a fun question on what your wine story is. Why did you fall in love with wine and what was the inspiration for that? So mine actually came through my grandparents. I love this question. My grandparents, for as long as I've been alive and that I remember, live in a town in Texas called Grapevine. Very apropoly named. It's actually where the Texas Grape Fest is every year. So I grew up around my grandmother and granddaddy, who both love wine. They are actually members of the Wine Pouring Society there. So they actually help with Grape Fest and do all sorts of events throughout the year and such. So I grew up with it in a weird way. And I even remember being a teenager and at Christmas, my grandfather getting a little tipsy and trying to give us all wine and my dad just being like, stop it. Because <laughs> I think the earliest memory I have of that was 15. But also they grew up, he flew planes in the military, so they grew up overseas. And so a lot of times when they lived abroad and so serving wine was just never a big deal. So yeah, I was through my grandparents, lots of great memories, drinking wine over there. And what about yours? I had no idea that you were Texas wine royalty. That's amazing. Royalty is a strong word. I think I told you that my grandfather is pretty hell-bent on making sure that bottles of wine are under $20 and thinks you can get great bottles of wine for under 20 bucks, and is very wedded to this idea. But yeah, we are a family of wine drinkers. <laughs> well, maybe he'll listen. Maybe we can change his mind through this episode. We'll see. So we'll have to have him listen. So my story... Mine was not from my family. In fact, definitely not from my parents. My mother drank Franzia for you Americans. This is box wine that is the bottom of the shelf. This is really bad. It was a pink color, but it was not rosé in the good way. This was just nasty. And then my dad, as much as he's traveled around the world, all of my kids, we often tease him because we'll be at a nice restaurant and he will still order the house Pinot, the house Pinot Grigio, which is effectively swill. And typically, my son will do some type of imitation where he's like, oh, sir, but we have this amazing special. We're pouring this beautiful Sauvignon Blanc. He's like, no, what is the cheapest, worst tasting house Pinot that you have? Whatever that is, give me it. So it wasn't my parents. It's actually a gentleman, Swiss French guy that used to be on the CFA board and became a good friend of mine, Fred LaBelle. This is about 12 years ago in New York City. It was after a board meeting and maybe 10 to 12 of us went out to a steakhouse and I happened to sit next to Fred, and I had known that he was very into wine, had quite a wine cellar at home in Geneva, which by the way, fast forwarding 12 years from then, from this moment, I was able to finally see his wine cellar only a couple years ago. But he gave me a masterclass that night in New York City at that steakhouse on the wine menu, vintages, supply, demand pricing. He pointed out the popular vineyards and wineries, explained blends and grapes to me, and he ordered... 10 to 12 people, remember. 
he ordered, I will never forget this, two Jeroboams of Silver Oak. Now, that's a good biblical name, Jeroboam, but do you know what a Jeroboam is, Christy? I actually do not. As soon as you said that, I was about to Google it, but then realized I would be tapping on my computer and would get in trouble. <laughs> so most people have heard a Magnum, which is a double bottle. A Jeroboam is a quadruple bottle. It's the equivalent of four bottles of wine in one very large bottle. So sometimes it's called a double Magnum. So he ordered two Jeroboams, which doing the math, eight bottles of wine. So it was a fun night to say the least. And it was from Silver Oak, again, for those of you that know your Cabernets in California, Napa cabs, Silver Oak from that night on has become one of my and my wife's very favorite wineries. And we ended up visiting there about five years later. So really was a great memory. And Fred deserves a lot of that credit. So that's my story. What an education in wine. That's awesome. It was a masterclass, as I said. Yeah, I still seek his advice from time to time. He has made me a skeptic of the wine menu. Always look carefully. There's always things that are mispriced, let's say it that way, both ways. So this is going to be so much fun. As I studied this, not only did I just learn a lot, as we both admitted, but I was really intrigued by what I found to be the structural scarcity of the entire life cycle of wine investing. And I think maybe that's not as obvious to just drinkers of wine or those that have not studied the asset class or the manufacturing process. So from the growing farmland available to the production of the grapes, there are ceilings and constraints and caps here that provide a really interesting supply-demand dynamic. There's inherent barriers to growth. And as consumption and wine popularity have risen exponentially in recent years, that bodes well for the asset class. So through the process, this morphed from just a labor of love to a much more layered investment research project for me. And the wine producing process, what I found and what I hope all of you will come to know if you don't already, is that this is complicated. These farms, this grape farmland has a very long half-life. And across the life cycle, which we're going to talk through, it offers various entry points and flavors to invest, all of which have different characteristics, vehicles, and drivers. So it's maybe not as easy as it might seem at the surface level. So we're going to try to help you think through this continuum with a bit of background and setup. So that agenda as over the next several minutes are going to be as follows. I'm going to give you a little bit of history of wine production, of wine drinking, of wine investing, which that last piece is a much newer phenomenon. I'm going to give you a brief flyover of the size of the wine market and the life cycle, as I just promised a moment ago. And then I will also talk a little bit about asset class characteristics. This is still fairly new, nouveau, and untested in some ways. But nonetheless, there is some data available to at least guide us on how to think about the asset class historical performance. And then I'll hand off to Christy, and she can provide her experience and her views on these ranges of asset classes, because it's not just a homogeneous one, as you'll see in a few moments. And then, of course, we will invite in studio our two guests for this episode. And those guests this time are Matt Parker, who is head of viticulture at Nuveen Natural Capital. Nuveen is the largest owner of farmland in the world. So we went right to the top on this one. Nuveen Natural Capital, obviously part of Nuveen, but this is their land-focused nearly $13 billion asset manager consisting of, and these numbers that you want to remember for Nuveen Natural Capital, three, 610, 3 million acres, 600 properties across 10 countries, three, 610. So they have scale, a lot of experience, 
Matt has the coolest job in the world, sits in Napa and invests, and I assume drinks once in a while, a lot of wine. Our second guest to compliment Matt and the institutional side of these real assets is Anthony Zhang, who is the founder and CEO of VinoVest. VinoVest is an online platform and marketplace that allows customers to build a high-quality, diversified portfolio of fine wines. And they handle everything from the research and the curation of the wine itself to storage, insurance, and both sides of the trade, a lot of the constraints that get in the way of retail ownership of wine bottles. So they will be joining us in a little while, but we need to set them up. We need to become a bit of their entrance song before they join us in studio. So as I said, history. I want to talk through three stages, and these are my language based upon the research. So again, this is not technical. I'm sure historians and wine experts might approach this differently. But as I studied the history of wine, there really were three phases that I thought were important to talk through. The first one is what I would call the ancient phase. There is shockingly evidence of wine fermentation as early as the 6th century BC. Really blew me away. Many of the empires and city-states thousands of years before Christ were using wine as a form of payment, trading, mercantile exchange. There is evidence of both drinking and fermentation, as I said, in places like Pompeii, the Greek Empire, the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, the Romans. So it goes way back. The idea of enjoying wine is not a new phenomenon, and we'll get to how it has evolved into an investment opportunity in a few moments. So that is the ancient phase. The second phase of history I would call aristocracy. And strangely, I'm going to go back to a 15-year-old girl to tell you about this phase of history. A 15-year-old girl in Aquitaine, France. So this is bordering the Atlantic and Spain on the southwest of modern-day France in 1137. So this is a long time ago. And this young girl named Eleanor was actually royalty. She was a duchess of this small administrative portion of France at the time. And she was wed to the king of France, Louis VII. And let's just say this marriage did not go well, and matters were not helped back then, which was a big deal when you're dealing with royalty and lineage and providing an heir. They struggled with childbearing. And that was just one of the many challenges that this young couple, this teenage couple faced. And eventually, Eleanor had had enough of the French court and her unsatisfactory marriage. And in March of 1152, she annulled the marriage, returned to Aquitaine. Now, this probably would have gone down as a footnote in history in French royalty, if not for Eleanor's second marriage, only six weeks later. Divorce had barely, the pen had barely dried. The ink had not even probably been sent to whatever the equivalent of the courthouse was. Eleanor marries again. And let's just say this gentleman, this second husband, would not have been Louis, the ex-husband's first choice, because this second husband was none other than Henry Plantagenet, who was the Duke of Normandy, the Count of Anjou. Now, if you know your British history, the House of Plantagenet ruled Britain for three centuries. And this was the start. Young Henry was the first. It was his mother, the Empress Matilda, who had a claim to the English throne that Henry eventually assumed. So Eleanor, this young 15-year-old girl, we've just started telling you the biography and story of, sat in a very powerful position. She was the former Queen of France and the future Queen of England. This was a power couple, to say the least. And Eleanor and Henry, by the way, just fun history fact, had eight children, five of them sons, two of which went on to be 
kings of England, Richard the Lionheart, John, Prince John of Robin Hood fame. So there is great lineage here. Now, why am I telling you all of this around this 15-year-old girl and her two marriages? What does this have to do with wine? Well, importantly, when Eleanor of Aquitaine married Henry in 1152, wines were given what's called royal approval. That was a very important public statement of acceptance, a stamp of approval. And immediately they were seen as appropriate to British and French high society. So the wine producers in these French wine producing regions benefited from proximity to Bordeaux as this key port and nexus for international trade for many centuries following that. Tradesmen were attracted to this, what was then a cosmopolitan city. And its wines became well known on a global platform for centuries to come. French wines in particular became known as the wine of the kings because of Eleanor's push to make them royally approved. And they graced the courts of Paris and Versailles. And then, of course, they made their way to London when Eleanor relocated. So that was the start of this aristocracy phase. Then our very own Thomas Jefferson. 1784, many of you might know, before he ascended to the presidency, he journeyed to France and he was negotiating trade dealings. He eventually became the senior minister to France. And while his diplomacy was largely a failure in that period of his life, his appreciation and love for the arts and architecture while he was there really started to develop. And if you've ever seen, by the way, his palatial estate off the Seine, the River Seine in Paris, you know that Monticello was largely influenced by his temporary residence there. It is beautiful. So he also developed, however, his palate for wine and maybe even its investment value. So his writings during his stay in Paris, perhaps in history, provide the first evidence of this idea that there would be a premium charge for older wine, for older vintages, for superior vintages. And we start to see that evidence throughout his journal writings during this time in Paris. Jefferson also, by the way, because of that developed love during this time in France, is often referred to as the father of the American wine industry. He famously, sadly, himself failed multiple times at bringing Bordeaux or Cab-style vineyards to central Virginia. But I should add that as a Charlottesville native and a place where I lived for a long, long time, do you know who was named the Wine Region of the Year for 2023, the Global Wine Region of the Year by the Wine Enthusiast? None other than Charlottesville, Virginia. So it has entered the global stage. Yeah. So TJ's legacy, after all those decades of failing in trying to create solid red wine vineyards, to some degree, he has vengeance many centuries later. And then fast forwarding another 50 years or so, Napoleon III, this is the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, last emperor of France, decides to throw a global exposition in 1855, similar to a World's Fair. And he asked that an association of Bordeaux producers create an exhibit. Well, how did this association decide what to include in that exhibit, how to organize or rank each of the chateaux wines? There was a lot of family debate and family divisiveness about who would be positioned best at this exhibition. And as a result of this association and the discussion around how they would merchandise, if you will, this exhibit, it became known as the 1855 classification of Bordeaux wines. And it was the very beginning of today's idea of creating standards and rankings of wines. And it all started in Bordeaux in 1855. Now, as you got this maturity 
and stratification of what was fine wine, what was middle level wine, and what was maybe populous wine, that really caught the interest of other parts of the world. And who was the global empire in the 19th century? Well, of course, it was the British. Back to Eleanor, as we just said, she had the remnant of her eight centuries earlier had really created this wine love and wine connection between Bordeaux and Britain. And as the wealthiest economy in the 19th century and consumers in the world were hungry for luxury items, tariffs were coming down on imports. The English upper crust were the largest buyers of French wines. London became the international center of wine trading, and they launched the first formal and sanctioned wine auctions. So finally, wrapping up our three stages, that was the aristocracy. So fast forward to about 40, 50 years ago, in the 1970s, the 1980s, it's the first time we started to have mention of investing in bottles of wine. That began to under the lexicon and the conscious, we start to see newspaper articles explaining the benefits of wine investing. So it had moved certainly downstream in societal classes, but also it had caught the interest of investors. The idea, back to Thomas Jefferson's maybe seeding of the idea, is that could you actually make money off proper investment in certain vintages and chateaus and blends? It was largely speculative at the time, as you might imagine, back in the 70s and 80s. There was huge amounts of fraud. And just to paint the picture, so in 1970 to 1972, the crew classes, which Bordeaux fans will know well, they were up 400% just in that 18 to 24 months. 1975, cases of Mouton Rothschild fetched a modest 74 pounds per case. And five years later, I guess that's 1980, that figure had jumped to 990 pounds. So there was some Dutch tulipy element to this, as there always are in early stage asset classes and early stage innovations. And I was thinking about this as we think about where in the life cycle, in the maturity, in the adolescence of wine as an asset class are we? Anytime you have these transformative new asset classes, they largely follow a familiar pattern. There's fervor first, as hype outpaces sensibility and gobs of VC money pours in and Retail speculation narratives take on these grandiose conclusions. And so you get these huge bubbles and movements, et cetera. Secondly, there's rationalization. So reality eventually kicks in and pretenders and nefarious actors are exposed and valuations reset aggressively. That's usually a painful time for the first movers. And then finally, there's reconciliation. And this is when it really grows up into mainstream accepted asset class labels or identity. And that's when sustainable use cases crystallize and revenue and profit models emerge. Now, we all know the story when you think of dot-com, when you think of certainly more recently with crypto, this is what happens when new technologies are created. And I would like to give you some major milestones in this modern, this final phase that we're talking about the last 50 years that I think justify my view that we're transitioning from that rationalization phase, the painful phase to one of stability, reconciliation, where speculation and fervor and this wild boom and bust cycles are finally starting to give way to more mature behavior and data-driven marketplaces, okay? So some of these major changes and developments really have defined this very accelerated and rapid acceptance and mainstream arrival of the wine industry. The first is that Viticulture evolution has gone from a family trade or perhaps a very exclusive guild into a true profession. So if you look around 
the world, you now have degrees in viticulture and enology. They've proliferated all over the world. By the way, viticulture is the study of grape cultivation and enology is the study of winemaking. So these two go together. And within that are curricula like soil science and plant biology and microbiology, food science, pest management, vine nutrition, water conservation, food packaging, marketing. This is a very extensive body of knowledge and a sophisticated, deep, technical body of knowledge. The Culinary Institute of America, which by the way, I was really disappointed our second son almost went there, but they have a master's in wine management. I was rooting for that just so I could go visit them in Napa on parents' weekends, but that didn't work out. You have certified sommeliers, you have the court of master sommeliers. So these historically wild swings in, in harvest supply and production outcomes that created lots of inconsistency in the drinking quality when you go back 20 or 30 years, that has really shrunk as far as the gap and the volatility because this expertise and this competency has multiplied many times over in vineyards across the world. The level of professionalism and, and therefore vintage volatility, if you will, is much narrower. It is professionalized. So that's the first, professionalization. The other one development that I think is important is this fragmentation of the life cycle of grape development or grape cultivation. And that's led to specialization and higher margins across the whole life cycle. So wine grape properties are now increasingly becoming much more sophisticated and are being designed for mechanization and a mass production, extensive irrigation infrastructure. And vineyard owners have also begun reversing the traditional integrated model of a combined vineyard and winery. So now what is often happening is that owner operators, they start selling the grapes to independent wineries. They've exited the business of wine production and they're just managing the farmland. And wineries have popped up all over that are doing the manufacturing and the processing towards the bottle eventually, but are not in the cultivation in the farmland side. So investors can now buy land and vines, and they don't need to own the processing assets. Or they can develop wine brands and distribution supply chains and winery sellers and not worry about agricultural expertise. So admittedly, I should say this is taking place much faster in the new world in America here, particularly where regulations are much more pro-business and profitable than in wine-producing parts of France and Italy. But this is a trend that is really taking shape across the entire industry. So specialization. Third is transparency and democratization of data. Any asset class that is coming of age starts to have access to all kinds of data that helps with price discovery and democratization of access and ease of introduction to both the research and eventually investing in the asset itself. Probably most notably in 2000, there were two stockbrokers in London named James Miles and Justin Gibbs that aimed to create a global marketplace and authoritative data source for wine trading. And they formed what's called the London International Vintners Exchange. We call it the LiveX. And their capstone product, a couple years later in 2003, was an index called the LiveX Fine Wine 1000. And it is largely considered the most authoritative source on the current pricing and trend pricing of fine wines. It has, just as the name suggests, 1,000 wines from across the world. And it uses the mid price. So it's calculated monthly, it's reviewed quarterly, and it uses these midpoints of bid and ask, which is generally accepted as best practices. And that is a diversified set of 1,000 different fine wine bottles across France, Italy, and the rest of the New World. You also, however, have online wine shops. 
that now make it much easier to compare to find the appropriate price. You've got trading exchanges like we're going to have on with Anthony in a moment with VinoVest, where investors can create portfolios of wine, do some research. The old wine rating system, which was much more cottagey and clubby, if you remember the days of just Robert Parker and James Suckley, basically their rating determined how a wine sold. And that has really proliferated and you can find many more wine ratings and wine critics data available online. I remember, Christy, as a kid, I collected baseball cards and there was this period where the monthly Beckett magazine for my baseball cards would come out and you'd, with great anxiety and excitement, look up my George Brett 1975 rookie card to see whether it had gone up a dollar or $2. And just like with trading cards now, you've got real-time online marketplaces with much tighter bid-ask spreads and we don't have to wait a month for lagged marks like you had to do in the old days. The fourth and final development, as I said, we have evolution of the profession, we have specialization, we have democratization of data, and finally, we have the Chinese entry. We all know the story of China. It had World Trade Organization entry in 2001, Beijing Olympics in 2008. And then post the GFC, Beijing had this massive fiscal stimulus that has led to stratospheric economic and per capita income growth. And that has aligned, as it typically does in economic theory, with much higher purchases and demand of luxury good. And that means wine consumption. So you had this brand new massive entrant, the largest country by population in the world, that had risen from nowhere as it comes to wine consumption and wine interest. And it's changed the dynamic of wine consumption considerably. And the supply-demand dynamic, as we'll talk about in a moment, has shifted massively. I could tell the same story in India, other parts of Southeast Asia and Latam, but China is really the needle mover here that has structurally changed the global consumption calculus. So that last modern era, we just went through the three eras of wine history. We gave you the developments that have really accelerated the acceptance and understanding of the wine market in that modern era. Quick flyover as we finish our background here of the size of the wine market. So the wine market, there is all kinds of data out there. And I must admit, it's not uniform. So I'm going to do my best here. But the wine market, from as far as I can tell, is about a $400 billion US global industry. For most data sources and forecasters, they expect a CAGR of about anywhere from 4 to 7%, which would take it to 600 to 800 billion by 2030. So Regardless of where you come out on that range, this is a fairly healthy growing industry, particularly on the revenue side. Easiest way to understand uh, the dynamics of the wine industry, it is produced in the old world and it is consumed in the new world. Now that is way oversimplifying, but what I mean by that is that there are about, in the unit sales of wine, about 240, 250 million hectoliters of wine produced every year. That's fairly flat, which I'll get back to in a moment. But the leaders in that are in the old world, in Western Europe, Italy, number one, France, number two, Spain, number three. They really dominate. Almost 60% of production are in those top three. The US is a distant fourth at 22, but certainly has risen in the last 20 years or so. And as I said, this production level, this production capability, this is the supply side of this equation is pretty stable. It can take three to five years post planting the vines until you have your first harvest. And more importantly, most of the wine producing land in the world is largely being used for that purpose. So there is this, as I said, at the very beginning of the episode, 
this inherent scarcity and production limit that's critical to understand that plays a big role as we think about the opportunity for price appreciation and returns. I said it was consumed in the new world, and I'm making an overgeneralization there, but the US is a, unlike production, it is a distant number one in consumption. France is number two, Italy, Germany, UK are the two through five. And only in the last 40 to 50 years, by the way, have the, has the new world really entered into the consumption calculus, the Americas, South Africa, Australia, they become very relevant on both sides of the equation, but particularly on the consumption side. I want to just go back to our scarcity story for a moment. Not only is the land scarce and is wine production really capped based upon land use, as I said, but so is the consumption, obviously. If you can only produce a certain amount of wine, you can only drink a certain amount of wine. And that has lots of bearings on pricing, particularly when you've got some parts of the world, as I mentioned, China, whose per capita consumption has been skyrocketing. The other element of scarcity, though, is on the bottles. So as harvests and vintages age, meaning as we get farther and farther away from when wine was harvested and bottled, people drink them. This is a consumable asset. And so by definition, there are less and less available as the more time passes. So you've got scarcity in production, and then you've got scarcity in the bottled assets the longer you go. And those two are interdependent. A couple other fun facts just on the size of the market. Large majority of this wine business or wine market size is table wine versus sparkling, which is the champagne and Prosecco, or fortified, which is dessert wine, things like port and sherry and Madeira. The sparkling and fortified are a small portion of the total production. And then for any of you that are interested, about 55% of total production is red and the remainder is white or sparkling. So pretty close, but slightly more demand on the red side of the equation. I mentioned that production is capped. There's probably 100,000 wine producers-ish around the world, but only about 250 producers of fine or premier wine, investable wine. And 90% of that is still, still, even a thousand years after young Eleanor, still produced within the Bordeaux region of France. So life cycle. I mentioned that you need to understand the life cycle. Christy, we often say this, I'm a little bit older than you. So some of these TV shows and pop culture in the 70s and 80s, you're not as familiar with. But do you remember, did you ever watch Saturday morning, Schoolhouse Rock? Does that ring a bell? I did. They actually had Schoolhouse Rock. They would play some of the old videos for us in school, the old VHS. Oh, there you go. So nostalgia. It was in the history class. Yeah. Anybody close to my age will vividly remember a Schoolhouse Rock animated skit called I'm Just a Bill. And it was a impersonated life cycle of how a legislative bill comes to fruition. So we're going to do our version of I'm Just a Grape. Okay. So this is your schoolhouse modern masterclass on the life of a grape. So there's Four phases here. And again, I'm not a wine expert. I'm just trying to prepare us to raise our competency for a healthy discussion with our two guests. First is cultivation. So this happens in the vineyard, as I mentioned earlier, specialization has occurred. So this is the agricultural process of managing the farmland to produce the grapes. So it's planting the vines, it's fertilizing and caring for them. This is protecting the crops from things like pests and weeds, and ultimately harvesting, picking the grapevines, picking the grapes off. So the asset here is obviously the direct crop producing farmland. These are direct assets, real assets. Operating costs are things like farm machinery, combination of specialized and non-specialized labor to manage the land. 
And I think as I alluded to a moment ago, from the first plant to the first legit harvest can be several years. It's not like you plant these things and suddenly you're producing grapes that fall. It can be several years before it is actually producing something worth bottling, fermenting and bottling. So that's one, cultivation. Second is vinification. Again, that word, which is the winery. This is the process of creating wine from grapes. So it's de-stemming, it's crushing, it's fermentation. And the process and the cost there are the wine crushing machinery. So unlike the old days, this is not people standing in bare feet and stomping on the grapes. That really very rarely happens anymore. These are big, big machines that do this in mass production ways. Then there's fermentation tanks. And then there's the aging barrels. So again, this has both specialized and non-specialized labor to accomplish that. Third is the bottling. And again, this can happen within the winery. It sometimes can be specialists as well. So this is when the fully aged barreled wine is ready, ready to be converted, actually put into the 750 milliliter bottles that we all typically stick on our tables. And as you might imagine, this gets into brand design and marketing and packaging and merchandising and distribution. So it's a very different type of business than the agriculturally rich elements of the first two phases. And then finally, there's the retail sale, things like transport, storefront, merchandising, dealing with the relationships with either the distributors or your grocery store, wine shop, or online merchant that all of us travel to to buy our wine. So important to understand the stages because as we'll talk about with Matt and Anthony, there are investment opportunities and there are investment characteristics and behaviors that are different at each stage of that life cycle. So the I'm just a grape show, I hope, has brought to life that you might imagine that there are different P&L structures, different types of labor needed, and therefore different types of investment capabilities that are available. I'm going to finish before I hand off to you with some performance and investment characteristics. The challenge of this episode and of the conversation you're about to hear with Matt and with Anthony is that we are combining two things. We are toggling between the front and the end of that life cycle I just talked through. So what we'll be exploring together is a combination of real income producing asset like farmland with a luxury consumable passion asset that you've mentioned, Christy, a bottle of wine. And as you might imagine, there are very different behavioral elements and asset class characteristics, risk return, volatility, drawdown, correlation elements, depending on which side of that spectrum you're on. So you have to bear with us because we're going to be jumping back and forth between agricultural farmland and a bottle of wine. But as I think about the farmland to start with, usually there's two elements of the farmland value. The first is capital appreciation of the property itself. And that's usually highly correlated to the strength of the wine market for a specific district or varietal. And it's historically the ability to create more plantable acreage on that site. Now, however, as I've already mentioned, most of this acreage that could be wine producing in Napa or in wine producing Europe has already been planted. So this idea of further acreage expansion, further production capability is not really part of the equation in modern times. It's supply constrained, as we said earlier. So beyond your current view of the usage of the farmland, capital appreciation, however, is also a function of what they call site value. And site value is the value associated with the land suitability for alternative uses other than agriculture. So it's the opportunity cost. And this is all subjective, but like with any real estate, who wouldn't want a summer home, a chateau in Napa or in Bordeaux? 
So you have these elements of other types of developers or buyers, either real or perspective or perceived, that play a role in the opportunity cost of the value. And as you, we'll talk a bit about this, when you think about the Silicon Valley, the greater Bay Area influence on Napa, just as an example, you can imagine that the site value opportunity, the imagination of other uses for that part of the world is actually quite inflated. So that's one is the property, the capital appreciation of the property itself. And then of course, there's the annual operating income. This is the cash flow that the asset is producing. This is through the sale of wine grapes or as a finished product to other wineries or distributors. And this annual operating income is driven both by grape yield, which as we said a number of times is relatively constant once the vines reach maturity, and then grape pricing, which has been on a upward and to the right trend for many, many years. So how does this break down into return streams? Well, Sadly, I couldn't find much information on European data, at least aggregate data. So we're going to have to rely on US-only data for return measures here, which far from perfect, given, as we said, this is the fourth largest wine-producing country in the world, so not really reflective of the full world. But nevertheless, it'll have to be an imperfect proxy. And this is Nuveen data. So this is from Matt's organization. Over the last 20 years, 20 years of data, average annualized return of grape-producing farmland in that period has been 17%. For Napa, 9% for Sonoma, and 21% for Monterey. That's annual. Very impressive. So how does that break down between the two components I just mentioned? Napa, just as an example, we'll use that as the example, 8% income producing growth, 9% capital appreciation growth. So fairly split evenly. And I just alluded to this, capital appreciation is probably inflated in places like Napa because of the unique nature of where they are. But even if you gave that portion a big haircut, the returns in the low to mid-teens are still very attractive. So I think that is really interesting. More interestingly, the correlation with traditional asset classes is very, very low. 0.1 to 0.2 with other traditional asset classes. Even correlation, this surprised me, Christy, with other wine-producing farmland is 0.2 to 0.3. Given that the elements and the drivers that impact the wine-growing districts and regions are very localized, seasonal climate, economics, real estate values, preferences for blends and vintages, all of this influences grape yields and grape prices and wine sales. And it is a very micro-oriented asset class, meaning specific to regions or even sub-regions. So that's farmland. Wine bottles, again, we're fast-forwarding through that whole life cycle to the end to actual wine bottle value themselves. I mentioned the LiveX 1000. It's finishing its 19th year. It peaked at 480 about a year ago, the index. So we're about a year off of its peak. It's corrected a little over 10% to 424 at the point of this recording. And that works out to 6.5%, let's call it annualized per year, even with this year's healthy correction. So look, our muscle memory, when you think of 6.5%, the industry has this horribly bad habit of comparing everything to public equities and therefore deciding whether it's a good investment or not. I think that as we've talked about, Christy, on other episodes, it's a massively flawed view of how to think about alternative asset classes because it misses the entire point of diversification and economic exposure. But I'm going to break that rule and certainly admit this is lower than the US-based S&P at least, but I should mention it's equal to or greater than European public stock indices, where most of these assets I should mention are being produced and held and where most of their value is derived. So I think that's worthy of at least considering 6.5% equity-like 
Drawdown stability is another side of the story that really makes this an attractive risk-reward option for some investors. You think about the last few bear markets or major drawdowns using, again, the S&P as a bogey. Dot-com crash in 2000, down 18%. This is the S&P. GFC down 30%. COVID down 18%. Just take a look at the LiveX 1000. was down only 4% during dot-com compared to 18. Only 8% during GFC compared to 30 down. And it was actually up during COVID. So interestingly, much lower volatility, drawdown risks. They do create elements of counter-cyclicality and maybe even an inflation hedge that's starting to showcase itself. And look, there's no doubt this is largely still a luxury, what they call treasure asset that has elements of passion and pop culture, social status. We're going to talk about this with Anthony in a few moments. But it has shown, I want to be fair, it has shown some evidence of store of value capability. And it's proved, at least in its 20 years of modern maturity, to be a good diversifier. So that was my tour of, I guess you could say, seven millennia, but particularly the more modern history gave you, hopefully, a very brief overview of the life cycle, how this market works, its shape, size, components, and then how it's behaved in these early days of it being an asset class, if you do want to call it that right now. So Christy, I'm going to stop there. Hand to you. Bring us your wisdom on how you've thought about this as an investor. Especially after that, I'm a grape rendition. That's fantastic. How am I supposed to follow that up? And I think I will say one of the surprising things as I look back is that I never invested in this area, which is crazy because as the people who know me know, I am a big proponent of farmland and love farmland and cannot say it enough for some reason. And given that a vineyard is farmland adjacent, you would have thought that it would have come up more. But as you were talking, I actually wrote down a joke to myself because I feel like the closest I ever got to investing in the wine bottling side of the industry was finding GPs that gave Christmas presents, good bottles of wine as Christmas presents. But I learned that after the fact. I didn't actually go into any of the managers knowing that. I just found that out later as a joking aside. So particularly as you were throwing out the low correlation, because you would think that especially with it being so difficult to find spaces to put money right now that aren't significantly correlated to equities. I've actually been a little bit surprised that there hasn't been more institutional capital that's gone in this space. And I do think your point is a great one that it being a treasure asset is definitely part of it. And I will say that actually reminded me, I worked with a family at one point who shall remain nameless. And I'm not going to give the country that they lived in because I don't want to give away any details, but two of the beneficiaries bought vineyards next to each other, literally next to each other. And one of the things that they would joke about in meetings is they would get ultra competitive about the rating of each other's wine. So much so that there was some cute espionage and stuff between them just because obviously they're family. But it always boggled my mind that you could have two vineyards that sit next to each other that have different ratings, significantly different ratings from year to year. So at that point, I just thought this is the fact that you could have low correlation, I guess, even between two competing wineries, I would have no idea how to even underwrite something like that. So I think that that was a lot of it on my end. And I think maybe something that a lot of other people come into also with the fact that it's alcohol. And people, again, look at that as more of a personal consumption story or interest versus a, oh, we should do this as an investment. But it's surprising because, again, low correlation and fairly price stable in terms of land. So really, that's all I have to add. It's just a couple of funny stories and a joke and introduction. Yeah, it's interesting on your diversification point. Kai does a lot of this on the benefits and the implications of adding a little bit of alternative here, a little bit of alternative there to a 60-40 portfolio. And similarly, 
Naveen's done some really interesting work. I mentioned elements of this. I didn't go into full detail, but if you take a Napa-only portfolio, so the equivalent of the 60-40, and you add a little bit of Sonoma and you sprinkle in a little bit of Monterey, yes, the returns go down a little bit, but still very, very strong. What's of much more importance, though, is that your drawdown, your volatility, your correlation all improve. So when you think about risk-reward, it's really, really important. And I mention that because just as you said, your Chateau neighbor diversification story, it's not quite that egregious. But even within one state of one country that I think even Americans would think of as at least fairly homogeneous, there is still a lot of variety of return and risk structure to these different wine-producing regions. So fascinating. Um, and I think relatively easy to get diversification versus most other asset classes. Agreed. I'm actually interested to learn more from our guests too. I can't wait to bring them in. Yeah. So as always, we can't wait to have Matt and Anthony in. Listeners though, we are going to take a quick break now and hear a little bit more with gratefulness from our sponsor, FT Alternatives. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Well, as promised, we are here with Dave Donahue. Dave is the co-head of U.S. Wealth Management for Franklin Templeton Alternatives. Dave, welcome to Capital Decanted. Thank you, John. Great to be here. And thanks for you and Kaya for everything you're doing for the alternative industry. Truly appreciated. Well, we are grateful for your participation. Franklin Templeton Alternatives is the title sponsor for this season of Capital Decanted. And we are grateful for Franklin Templeton's longstanding devotion to client-first mentality, to ensuring that clients build diversified portfolios. So this was a really great match and partnership for our first season. Dave, maybe a couple of questions for you, because I think a lot of listeners might be unfamiliar with the sheer scale and scope and activity, M&A activity, of Franklin Templeton over the last several years. Tell us a little bit about just level set for us, the alternatives offerings and scale at Franklin Templeton. Absolutely, John. So alternatives are just a natural extension of what you described earlier as a client first mentality. For 75 plus years, we've been focused on helping clients solve problems in the investment landscape. This is a part of that. But you're right. A lot of folks aren't aware of our size and scale today. Alternatives by Franklin Templeton is now approximately $260 billion in assets, making us a top 10 player in alternatives globally. And we cover all the major food groups, from private real estate, private credit, private equity, and hedge funds. I think we do it in a unique way, focusing on acquiring best-in-class and differentiated institutional alternative managers, leaving them 100% alone from an investment perspective, and then bundling the resources of Franklin Templeton around them to help bring their business to the private wealth space. We're really excited about that. Fantastic. And maybe as we think about Franklin Templeton's history, I think most people would come to mind would be a very reputable and a longstanding history around public equity, mutual funds, international investing, particularly the Templeton portion of the brand. When was this moment of realization that you needed to diversify? And how has the organization gone about building out this stable of offerings you've referred to? Yeah, it's a great question, John. I go back to our CEO, Jenny Johnson, who I know you know well. And Jenny's always thought long-term about this business. Franklin Templeton, if we flash back in time, invented the mutual fund in many ways, shape and form to help democratize access to public markets for individuals. And we're doing that here. So about five years ago, we took an approach that said, 
traditional investments will be a key part of our business going forward, period. But there's this growing landscape of alternatives where technology, operations, and regulatory structure are making them more accessible for the individual. And we want to participate in that. So while a lot of traditional firms have dipped their toe into the pool of alternatives, we've really tried to take a cannonball into the deep end. We've done four key acquisitions over the last five years that have scaled our business to the $260 billion we're at today. And what's really important to us, John, is three things. One, I mentioned this earlier, best in class and differentiated institutional alternative asset managers. Every firm that we own in the space sourced 98 plus percent of their capital from the largest institutions globally. We don't want to change that. What we want to do is maintaining their investment integrity, find ways to package and bring those products to the wealth space. And we've dove in the deep end there by building a 40-person end-to-end distribution team in the U.S. focused on private markets and hedge funds to complement the work we do on the traditional side as a trusted brand to advisors. And the benefit we're seeing in conjunction and partnerships with firms like Kaya is really that trusted voice that we've built over decades is allowing us to help educate the next set of advisors to adopt alternatives on how to do so responsibly and appropriately for their client portfolios. Outstanding. And I think listeners, you hear that devotion to client first threaded through all of Dave's answers, which we really appreciate. Dave, obviously, you don't want to give away trade secrets or maybe bring out the crystal ball. But as you mentioned, several food groups that you guys have been active in building out, as I said earlier, this stable of offerings. Are there gaps or particular aspirations that you think we might expect to see whether build versus buy Franklin Templeton continue to grow their business in? So if I think about gaps first, our gaps are in the real assets and the infrastructure space. We have a great real estate business through Clarion Partners, but we don't do real assets or infrastructure today. The other big notable gap is on the private equity side where we do growth and venture, where we do secondaries through Lexington Partners, but we don't have an LBO buyout business. I'd say our aspirations between those two gaps really do lie with the infrastructure space. And our CEO, Jenny, has been public about that. You have to do it with the right firm at the right price and the right time. But infrastructure is a future focus for us. And I would tell you, John, our overarching focus today is on execution. We've acquired the right managers. We've left them in place to do what they do best, which is manage capital. We've built our team, and now we're laser-focused on being the right partner and friend to the distribution teams we've worked with for decades on the traditional side. Outstanding, Dave. Well, really good flyover of what you guys are doing, and it is very dynamic. There is kinetic energy to what you're building. The enthusiasm really just comes through each time I talk to a portion of your organization. So on behalf of the entire Kaya community and all of our listeners, thank you again for your support and partnership. For this podcast and listeners, stay tuned. We're going to move on to our segment where we invite our guests in. Thanks again. Welcome back, listeners. And as promised, we are now here in studio with Anthony Zhang and Matt Parker. Gentlemen, welcome to Capital Decanted. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on, John. Well, we started off this whole episode, guys, with the statement that given the origin story and the name of our show, this episode had to happen. It was destined to happen. I was reminding Anthony, who I've gotten to know over the last couple of years a little bit, that I shared the metaphor name maybe six, nine months ago, and he was very encouraging to me. So it was necessary to get Anthony on. And Matt, I feel like we've complimented you as a representative of the largest farmland owner in the world with a broad 
view of this life cycle of wine investing that is really unprecedented. So I think the listeners, you guys are in for a real treat over the next few minutes. So again, thanks for joining. I thought we would start, given that this is a holiday special, a little bit even more informal than our normal style, I thought we'd start with a little bit of personal story because Christy and I shared our wine story, the moment we remember falling in love with wine. But Matt, maybe I'll ask you, do you remember a vivid moment or experience where your love of wine became real? Thanks, John. It was more of a journey, I would say, than one specific moment. So my background and journey into wine, I'd lived in Southern California about 20 years ago, and I had a friend who was getting into wine at the time as well. So we took quite a few trips up to Paso Robles, Santa Barbara, that area. There's also this great wine shop called Wally's on the west side of Los Angeles to these wine education classes. So it's such a great spot. We would go there. We were total novices among people who were very well-versed in wine. And that opened my eyes to it. Also, just very into the outdoors. So most vineyards, it's very fortunate. Wine grows well in beautiful places. So just being out in nature and being among these beautiful areas really made it meaningful to me. And then professionally, so I'd been a pilot in the Marine Corps from 95 to 2006. And I got out and I went to business school from 2007 to 2009. Graduated in 2009, which is obviously a very difficult time in the marketplace. So I moved back out to California. I'd studied real estate and finance. But there was still this love of wine and wanting to be around it. So I literally got a job working in the cellar of a Sonoma County winery called Chalk Hill in the harvest of 2009. And it was literally manual labor, making wine and shoveling out tanks, moving barrels around on a forklift, cleaning presses things like that. Even though I wasn't intending to be a winemaker or go into the production side, I did think it was meaningful to learn from the ground up. Did that for the harvest of 2009, learned a lot about it. And then just through networking and friends of friends got connected to the group I'm now the head of. I started as a financial analyst. We're structured similar to a real estate investment firm. So I was the analyst doing underwriting models on vineyards, helping out with due diligence things like that. That was the start of it. Awesome. I think if I were stuck in a cellar in a winery, <laughs> it would be very dangerous for both my employer and myself for various reasons. But Anthony, how about you? What was your moment? Oh, I think my wine story really was about, I'd say, 10, 12 years ago. I was still in college and my then girlfriend, now wife, and I, we went to France and took the train over to Bordeaux and was fortunate enough to visit many of the chateaux there. And just being able to learn about the history, just how far back the wine growing culture and tradition goes in Bordeaux, it really just blew my mind. And I think as Matt mentioned, wine grows in beautiful places and just seeing those rows of vineyards and tasting the wine, being in the environment was a sucker and pretty much had way too many boxes of wine shipped to me from Europe after that trip. Had to find space on what to do in my tiny apartment in LA. And that's what really kickstarted my wine journey. And that small wine fridge was not enough space. So I slowly started to accumulate more and more throughout the years. That's great. By the way, I mentioned that I've gotten to know Anthony a little bit over the last couple of years. He's a really humble guy who has one of the most admirable and inspiring founder and life stories you can ever imagine. So check him out. I won't force him to tell that story again, but I've learned a ton from him. So Anthony, we appreciate you and I'd encourage listeners to learn from him as well. 
So Matt, maybe I'll turn to you as we shift from personal to professional here. We spent time in our opening segment walking through the wine life cycle, the story and journey of a grape from the farm all the way onto our table and everything in between, cultivation through vinification, through bottling, through distribution to retail. You've talked about having been accidentally thrust into this industry and now having seen a lot of the sides of it over the last many, many years. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of the wine industry and now what parts of the now specialized value chain are investable? Sure. So if you think about it, vineyards and wine have been around for literally thousands of years and not too much of a different format. Romans were growing grapes, they were fermenting in clay pots, which was somewhat different, but really you're dealing with ultimately the same or a similar product. But what we do in terms of investing in farmland and agriculture and specifically vineyards as an asset class has really not been around that long. It's really been the last 30 to 40 years that we've seen significant growth in the industry. And as you pointed out, there's a fairly wide spectrum of the value chain where people can invest. And really, the different asset classes, whether it's a vineyard, true agriculture, or an actual winery or a brand, or now there's these asset light brands who don't necessarily own any real estate. They're just a negotiant, more or less. It really comes down to pairing the risk-return profile with the investors and what they're comfortable with. So what we do is arguably the lowest risk, but also on the lower end of the risk-return spectrum because it is fairly stable. And so most of our capital comes from pension funds, vineyards, and the farmland side is really pretty stable. It's got certain characteristics that make it attractive to long liability-dated investors. And it really is suitable for long-term investments. So that's the way we approach it. Whereas with wineries, you've seen some of the more consumer-focused or larger PE firms go in, GI partners, TSG consumer partners, they've invested in various wineries. So those are probably the, the main things that we see. So the evolution has been dependent on a couple of main tenants. One is just the professionalization of management, as I mentioned before, we do approach it similar to a real estate firm. We have a significant and very robust underwriting and due diligence process. We build many of our vineyards from scratch. So it could be a green field, which isn't that common, but redeveloping older vineyards that are at the end of their useful life. So we have people on staff. That's their job and expertise, but a culturalist. And the other aspect is just really understanding how to create a low-risk portfolio. A lot of that comes down to diversification. So we look at diversification along several different metrics. One is geography because it's an agricultural product. It's subject to weather risk, whether it's frost, rain, fire, things like that. So the more geographically diversified you are, usually that's going to be fairly beneficial in protecting your investment return. Also, the varietal diversification is important for a couple of reasons. The varietal, as you know, is the type of grape, whether it's Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir. That's what most of our portfolio is. Weather patterns can affect different varietals in different manners. Consumer preferences also ebb and flow throughout the market cycle. And then also diversified by water area, because that's one of the things that's top of mind for us is the water availability. And so there's different areas with different rainfall characteristics. There's different aquifers, particularly in California, that 
offer pros and cons. And so that's kind of how we approach. And then also just being able to communicate what those investment characteristics are to an institutional investor who's not necessarily used to investing in farmland. So those have been some of the big drivers of the evolution and bringing farmland and particularly vineyards to an investable asset class. It's really interesting. So building on that question for you, Anthony, as we think about the more consumption-focused side of this industry, what are some of the evolutionary trends that you've seen in that regard, just in terms of popularity or demographics and whatnot? I think what Matt said is really fascinating because in our business, we really deal with once it is bottled, that second journey of the wine and what happens in the secondary market with consumer trends. And I think with the wine that we deal with, which is primarily the probably top one or 2% of wine by value, is that we've seen large globalization and diversification in terms of the market share. So for example, 20 years ago, I would venture to say over two thirds of the wine traded on the secondary market and auction was from Bordeaux. The first growth, Chateau, Lafitte, Mouton, and so on and so forth. But now we've seen that market share drop in half. Bordeaux accounts for about a third of the market share with other regions like Burgundy, Champagne, Italy, within Italy, Tuscany and Piedmont really start to have more and more global appeal. And we started to see that with this generalized more globalization of wealth as well. Asia, I think particularly China in the last 10, 15 years has been a huge driver of consumption of fine wine. And we're starting to see that even this year with a lot of the alcohol laws being relaxed in the least, that's supposed to be a really great growth opportunity on the consumption side for years to come as well. Fantastic. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this Eastern explosion of demand, Anthony, that you just alluded to and how that has changed the supply-demand dynamic because obviously to the large extent, the supply is fairly capped. There's a scarcity inherently built in, which I think makes this whole asset class really, really interesting and quite attractive. And on that note, Matt, so maybe, and you alluded to this a little bit as you were transitioning with the last question, but as we think about the investing characteristics of the asset class, whether it's the return stream, the volatility, and does it have inflation hedge capability, drawdown protection correlation, there's lots that's been written about this. And admittedly, just as both of you have said and written about, we've only got 20, 30 years of data here. It is not tested over multiple cycles, but we're starting to get a data set that at least is directional on how it is meant to behave through cycles. So Matt, help us understand how this portion of a diversified portfolio should behave and what benefits it would have. Absolutely. And if I could just take a little step back. So generally what we're doing is we do have some legacy investment funds that are 100% vineyards, but really what we found offers the best investment thematics and characteristics to our investors is constructing a fund that is diversified across crop type too. And what I'm talking about is not only vineyards, but row crop land in Illinois and the Mississippi River Delta that's leased out, for example, and then horticulture crops as well, almonds and pistachios, something like that. So the vineyards make up one component of that and they have their own known characteristics. But there is the farming investment characteristics that are attractive. It does provide diversification to portfolios. It is somewhat niche, but it's not highly correlated with other asset classes. And we've done quite a bit of math and modeling to prove this up. And it's not highly correlated with stock or the bond market. It does, as you mentioned, provide an inflation hedge particularly with the other types of farmland, like the row crop land, because that really gets to the heart of food production. 
there's an income component, obviously, and it's similar to commercial real estate in that the higher class A properties generally trade at a little bit lower cap rate and the properties that are in lower tier areas traded at a higher cap rate. So Napa, for example, is, as you all know, is pinnacle of the U.S. wine industry and the cap rates are generally about 4 to 6%, depending on where you're at. There are ways to increase that when you redevelop or replant a vineyard, which is part of our focus. So the income and then appreciation is a really important thematic of the asset class. And part of our thesis is really focusing on class A areas, the core areas. So for the vineyards, Napa, Sonoma, Monterey, Pass Robles, Santa Barbara, those types of areas, there is limited land. A lot of people have this concept that you can just go plant a vineyard anywhere. There's unlimited land. That's actually not the case. There has to be certain topography, sun exposure, Water availability is really important, soil types and soil series. And so when we're looking at where to buy, we're looking at all those things. And so that's really buying the best quality properties is what creates that long-term value store and value appreciation. So those are the big drivers, the thematics of the investment. As you pointed out, one of the challenges, like a lot of real estate, is liquidity. And so how do you create that? One way is just through the fund structure, is structuring it so there's liquidity for investors. And then also just buying the highest quality assets you can find because those are going to be the most tradable at a later date. Anthony, I want to talk a little bit about the insight that led you a few years ago to launch VinoVest, but maybe just real quickly as a follow-up to Matt. We talked in the first segment about the LiveX 1000, which is the best we got so far. We've got two decades, at least, of good indice data on this. Same type of question. What have you seen in those first 20 years as far as the performance, behavior, return risk profile of bottles of fine wine versus the vineyards? Absolutely, John. And yeah, for I'm not sure how in-depth you covered the LiveX 1000, but I think it makes sense to go into the methodology and composition of it because it's not really apples to apples when you think of it versus the S&P 500. But that is going to be our benchmark for today. And the LiveX 100 is composed of several sub-indices where you've got the Bordeaux 50, you've got the Burgundy 50, the Champagne 50, Italy, and then Rhone, and then rest of the world. So inside rest of the world, you've got other countries like the US, Portugal, Germany, and Australia. So with these thousand different wineries from these key regions, they also do an equal weighting of the last 10 available vintages. So you'd say it's 2023 right now. You've got the 2021 all the way through 2012 of Chateau Lafitte on equal weighting for a 12 pack of 75, 750 milliliters. So they standardize it to a 12 pack of the most commonly traded size denomination as well. And then every single year, what they'll do in the index is take out the oldest vintage and replace it with the newest vintage. And I will say that the LibX 1000 is very Bordeaux-dominated because back then when they constructed it, we were in a very Bordeaux-dominated secondary market. So 50% of the entire index is just one region of Bordeaux, which right now, if we were to reconstruct the index at VinoVest, we have our own VinoVest 100. It's more proportioned to what the current market share is currently looking at right now. But that's a little bit of background on the LiveX 1000. It is still, I think, the market industry standard that everybody looks at. 
when they are looking at fine wine performance. And looking at the past 20 years, it's been giving around 8.6% a year. And that's not including things like storage fees, broker fees, and things like that. So depending on who you invest with or who you buy with, there may be additional costs added on top of that return that can decrease it. But with VinoVest, what we've seen in terms of the factors we look for, the correlation has been low over the past 20 years compared to the S&P 500. On average, it's been around a 0.12 correlation rate. And then when you look at the volatility that exhibits, it's about a third of the volatility rate as the S&P 500. So giving a very strong risk-adjusted returns against the S&P, which also has been historically right 8 to 9% a year index to invest in. So as you think about, speaking of Inovest, Anthony, and the wider demographic acceptance that you talked a little bit about a few moments ago, the very attractive supply-demand equation, the risk-reward profile you just articulated, meaning lower volatility, low correlation, and fairly healthy equity-like returns. What was the combination of all of that in driving you or influencing this insight that has become VinoVest now? Yeah, I think really the strongest factor comes down to the fundamentals of the asset class. As Matt mentioned, you can't plant a vineyard anywhere. You can't just decide to grow great wine. And the places where you can grow great wine are under immense pressure from climate change. It's harder and harder to be able to create consistent yields for a product that you cannot just create more supply of. And you couple that with the global demand where we're seeing more and more different countries and different new wealthy individuals want to consume the highest end, greatest bottles, most sought after rare bottles. And you just have less and less supply coupled with more and more demand. And then as the bottles age, every single person who consumes a bottle of the new 2021 Chateau Lafitte, thank you because you're creating less and less supply. So there's more scarcity when the bottles get older and older. And there's also more demand because people prefer the taste of mature wine as well. So at the end of the day, you don't need to know anything about specific wines or vintages or varietals. You just need to believe in the strong economic fundamentals that are driving the price up every single year for this asset class. That's so fascinating. So as I think about this, we're starting to cover the more specifics of what changes the actual pricing of an asset. And I know, Matt, you mentioned a couple already. So when you're thinking about the land side, you're looking at topography and sun exposure and water availability as some of the things that drive prices. Are there any others that are price dependent in that regard or that drive pricing in this asset class? The biggest one is just the location or viticultural area. And everything obviously flows downhill from the consumer side. Just a little bit of background on our business model. So we're actually growing and selling the grapes, mainly to third-party wineries. So that's how the income is produced. As you know, there's a huge variety of pricing in wine. There's everything from the Chateau Lafitte's that Anthony mentioned of the $3 box of wine. So the price of land really does highly correlate with the grape that it's producing. So just to put things in perspective, so in Napa Valley, it's obviously dominated by Cabernet Sauvignon. A ton of grapes, that's the metric you sell by a ton, costs about $9,000 to buy or sell a ton. Whereas if you go to 
the Central Valley, where the lower end wine is produced, it's $300. Now you can grow a lot more yield in the valley because it's a lot hotter. You have these huge water systems, you plant different varietals, but that's the disparity that you're looking for. And so that flows into the land price. So an acre in Napa might cost four hundred to $450,000, whereas in the Central Valley, it's $35,000. So more than 10x difference. So that's the biggest one. But I think the size and the scale, what we're looking to do is larger, more efficient vineyards. That's a price driver. The what is planted is also a price driver. Oftentimes, if we're buying a vineyard at the end of its useful life, we're going to tear out the vines and replant anyway. So there's some impact there. The water availability or the water infrastructure, those are a lot of the big drivers in the price of a vineyard. I never knew that the pricing was so different in areas that are kind of close to one another. (laughs) Yeah, it's similar to the disparity in price of wine. (laughs) Anthony, maybe the other side of that equation is the individual bottle of wine. I think we still sometimes talk about bottles of wine as having elements of luxury item, lifestyle item. So I imagine that things like perceived drinkability, the trends of certain grape styles, the perceived coolness, if I can put it that way, plays a role in this, similar to my vintage Jordans, right? And by the way, it's not that I invest in Jordans, it's that I'm vintage and still have an old pair of my own Jordans. That's why I have vintage Jordans. So I assume there's some similar weird combination to all of that. And then there's some fundamentals like vintage and scarcity and shifting preferences. How does all of this come together when you think about due diligence, if I can put it that way, on a bottle of wine? So when we do construct our models for diligence on these wineries, we're relying heavily on the historical data of previous vintages. So sticking with Chateau Lafitte, or maybe we'll go here to the US with Opus One. When we're investing the latest vintage of Opus One, we're lucky to be able to have the past 10, 20 vintages to be able to compare it against and seeing similar weather patterns, similar supply, similar initial critics release scores really help us to be able to determine whether the release price is within our price target to be able to consider it a buy. And things like the brand equity do really matter because a critic giving it a 100 point score for the first time or other factors that you can't see in data For example, the head winemaker at Ornelia just left to go to a different project in Bordeaux. So changing leadership also means changing in style the wine that they're going to create. Or if LVMH decides to buy up a winery, you know that they're going to be marketing the hell out of that winery in the future. And that means that its brand equity is likely going to go up just by being a part of that portfolio. So on one hand, we have very data-driven aspect. And then on the other hand, we need to be able to take in signals from the market that they're giving us to be able to influence our decisions as well. And maybe pushing back to my vintage Jordans and my love for MBA for just a moment. And this is speaking to the pop culture nature that I think has become, as you know better than anyone, a bigger part of wine's broader acceptance into celebrity status and athletics. So I know you recently featured James Harden's new collection. J.J. Redick, who as a Virginia fan, by the way, I hated in college at Duke, but now love in the NBA. LeBron, C.J. McCollum is on your council. You've suddenly had all these NBA stars not only, I think, embrace the idea of drinking wine, but actually invest. So how has this helped the younger generation acceptance of wine? And maybe what are some of the potential risks of this being such a trendy asset class? 
I think that's a great point that the pop culture, especially with professional athletes and actually many A-list celebrities too, they've all tried to start their own wine brand. And in addition to creating their own businesses, they've been very public in terms of their consumption. Even last weekend, I saw Phil Ivey at the poker table and then he had a bottle of 2002 Cru Dambinet, which is a 2000 something dollar bottle of wine that he's just popped right there at the poker table. So I think it's given fine wine, which traditionally has had huge issues with reaching their customers and being able to connect with them. I think it's given them a lot more visibility in terms of being accessible and being able to tell those stories in a way that I think today's modern generation, Gen Xers, millennials, which are starting to become more and more of that typical main wine drinker moving from the baby boomers. That's been a great boon for that. I'd say the risk is because if you have a LeBron or a Beyonce posting a photo of your wine on Instagram or on social media, if you're a small production winery, that could completely just spike the secondary market price of your bottles in a good way. But what does that mean for the existing consumers of it? Will they still be able to enjoy your wine? Are you alienating a part of your mailing list by growing too quickly in terms of price? Everyone knows that everyone a part of a mailing list is expecting some modest price increase year after year. But if it's become a celebrity's favorite go-to wine and they buy all the supply of it, what's going to happen there? And we actually saw the exact thing happen maybe four or five months ago. Beyonce posted a bottle of Sasakaya 2016. Overnight, price of Sasakaya 2016 on the secondary market went up nearly 20%. These celebrities are real market movers, especially when the supply is so scarce and when information is so disjointed. There isn't a huge global stock exchange for wine where everybody can be able to have the same information and transparency yet. It's part of what we're looking to build out at VinoVest, but um, there are certainly opportunities, but also those short-term gains can turn into long-term risk for those wineries who don't manage the price accordingly. Well, and speaking of price movement, one of the things that we went over at the beginning of this episode was long-term performance. And John mentioned that there's been a bit of a correction over the past year, just broader wine indices. Can you speak to what's driving that or if it's like specific regions or geographic focuses and whatnot? And where do you think the best rebound areas will be? That's a great question. So to give a little bit of historical context, the wine market has really been on a tear since 2017 average returns across the LiveX 1000 index was closer to 12 to 15% versus its usual 8 to 9% a year. So this year, we've seen about a 10% correction over the past 12 months. And that has been consistent across all regions. But the regions hit hardest were actually the ones that had grown the fastest. So Burgundy and Champagne over the last five years have been averaging around 25% a year in terms of annualized returns. This year, they're down about 25%. So completely reverting, at least erasing the entire gains of the previous year. When we're looking at the regions hit the least or ones that are best poised for the rebound, it really has been these historical blue chips. So the brands that are the first growth Bordeaux or the super seconds or the Opus ones of the world, they have been very steady, not having market beating returns. But when we're looking at rebounds and we're looking at historical data back to the last crash, which was around in 2012, the ones that rebounded the quickest were those brand names, the tried and true ones. And what's really causing this correction we're seeing is really the high interest rate environment and that the global instability in terms of geopolitical situations, what's happening in Israel as well. So all that has led to 
a lot of uncertainty and a lot of stock being held as well by a lot of these brokers who last year, maybe they were expecting an even bigger year in 2023. They bought a lot this year. New ventures are coming out, but they haven't really sold out of all their old stuff. So they're really reluctant to buy new ones. And that's also led to part of why the market is in a correction phase right now. The real answer to Christy's question, Anthony, is whatever Beyonce's drinking will recover the fastest. I think that's what I've learned from this discussion, the Beyonce effect. We could monetize that, sell us some type of ETF of that. That's her tracker. Our entire machine learning algorithm is based on monitoring her social media. Matt, before we shift to some fun closing thoughts on what's going to be on our holiday tables for the listeners, maybe I thought I would go back upstream to the vineyards and end with you. And that is the shape, the ownership structure of the market itself, of farmland, acreage, of grape producing acreage. My understanding is this is still, despite places like Nuveen and other GPs and asset managers starting to create some scalable investment vehicles for endowments and pensions like you talked about a little bit earlier. It's still a very localized, family farmer-driven market. Have you seen that hit a J-curve turning point? And how do you expect that to trend over the next decade for professional and retail investor interest? As you mentioned, there has been quite a bit of aggregation. We've been one of the leaders in this. Just as institutional demand does increase, as we're able to produce consistent results year over year, create an attractive investment product. And I think that will continue. I do think vineyards in particular are going to continue to be fairly fragmented when you compare it to other asset classes for a couple of reasons. One is not everybody who owns a vineyard has the same goal. For us, we're trying to produce a high quality crop, but at larger yields because we're trying to deliver the best return crop possible. Whereas to go back to uh, Opus One, they're not necessarily trying to grow the biggest crop as possible because they have a certain demand plan. They know what they can get from their vineyard and they don't necessarily want to push the yields as much as possible. And also, a lot of the higher end wineries want 100% control of their own vineyard. So they'll still want to own that. The other fragmentation is there's just a lot of wealthy individuals and family farmers, as you mentioned too, that just want to be in the vineyard space. I mean, it's just a area that a lifestyle and an aspect that attracts a lot of people. So I think there's still going to continue to be some ownership there. And also different vineyards present different characteristics that are attractive to the various parties for different reasons. The higher end, small hillside vineyards, those are probably going to stay with a winery or high-end farmer, whereas we're looking at the bigger, more efficient, where we can still produce a very high-quality product, but keep our costs down just to deliver a more economic return. So I think there's going to continue to be consolidation, but it will be limited by just some of the aspects specific to the particular vineyards. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. You make a really good point because in some sense, it reminds me of the Harley-Davidson or the Ferraris on the auto side, where there is very high-end, artificially limited supply. They control the supply chain intentionally to create that luxury premium. But then where the metaphor breaks down is that even the Hondas and the Toyotas in the scarce grape farming opportunity or acreage opportunity can't build another factory. They can't keep growing their production cycle. And so, as I said at the beginning, it creates some really nice ceilings on production that then just makes this a demand-driven equation that's very attractive. So really interesting to think about, guys. That was fascinating discussion. And we are going to shift to perhaps the fun close here. We typically call this segment the last sip. It's usually without the guests, but because 
This is a special holiday special. We're going to ask for your expert opinions. And our question, of course, we agreed to, which it has to be this time around, given the topic of the conversation, is what's going to be on your table? For all those listeners out there that I'm sure there's a full spectrum of wine lovers to novices here that are evaluating this for the first time. So I'd love a suggestion or two that you're excited that you expect to be on the Parker and Zhang table come these holiday seasons. So Matt, I'll start with you. I will say it was actually the hardest question that you gave us because there's thousands of good wines. I picked just a couple, but one uh, producer I've been enjoying lately is Parniente. They're in Napa Valley Winery, a historic winery. So they make a range of products. They make a Cabernet that's very good, a Chardonnay that's very good. They also have a couple of other product lines. One's called En Route, which is a Pinot Noir and Chardonnay brand. And then a Post and Beam is another one of their brands. So that's one producer that I really like a lot of their products. I've had the Post and Beam. I didn't know they made a cab. So I'm writing that down feverishly. Anthony, how about you? What are you excited about these next few weeks? Matt, I was actually just in Napa a couple of weekends ago and visited Farniente because what they're really known for in the fall is their amazing ginkgo trees. They've become this beautiful, beautiful golden yellow color. And they had to actually install security guards around the trees because there were so many tourists just not looking to visit the winery, just looking to take photos of those trees that it was clogging up the traffic on the road on Oldfield Drain to actually get to the winery. But the wine is also very, very good. I got a little bit sidetracked. But yeah, back to question on what I've been enjoying. I think really been enjoying a lot of back vintage Napa Valley cabs. So these would be ones from the early 2000s. One I had recently was from Bond, which is owned by the Harlan family. And it's their St. Eden single vineyard Cabernet Sauvignon. I had a 2010 and a 2004 recently. And I really think that these Napa cabs, you can enjoy them young, but if you do get the opportunity to find one that maybe has 10, 15, even 20 years of age on it, I think that's really when they're at their best. So that's something that I've been enjoying. And then something more fun, since we were talking about Sasakaya, so the estate that produces Sasakaya is called Tenuta San Guido, and they produce a Sangiovese-based Super Tuscan blend called Le Defese. And Sasakai is $300, $400 a bottle, not really attainable for daily drinking, but the Ledefese is about 30 bucks a bottle. So you're able to taste some of the young vines that actually could eventually become Sasakai vines in the future. And it's a really affordable, delicious, easy drinking, food-friendly wine. Sounds outstanding. Also on my list now. Christy, how about down in Texas? What do you expect to curate for your holiday season? Oh, see, mine's a dream because you guys both mentioned it. And my absolute favorite bottle of wine is the 2013 Opus One. Amazing wine. Hopefully I'm on Santa's good list this year. We'll see. Um, <laughs> I'll take the 2012 as well. But my dad closed a business deal a long time ago and actually got multiple bottles of that and just kind of handed me one. Was fairly young, couldn't really afford a bottle like that at the time. It was just, yeah, I'll take this bottle and ended up just cracking it open with friends. And we were all like, what is this? <laughs> so yeah, bring back those memories. So I'll close before I give my recommendation. You reminded me, I have an Opus One story. My wife and I and two very close friends did a Napa trip and we were at Opus One. And if anybody's seen the book and Singapore-inspired Crazy Rich Asians movie, there was literally Crazy Rich Asians that happened to be right in front of us. They literally walked out with like cases of this. 
So we go up to this tasting bar and typically it's the last three vintages basically available. Well, this is two years ago, just to put this in perspective. And the woman behind the bar looks at me and goes, actually, they just opened a ton. I'll sell you a glass of 2004 for the same price. I'll sell you the 2016. I was like, yes, pour it all. So it was unbelievable. Very nice. <laughs> Rising tides lift all boats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they were my new best friends. That was a wonderful accident. So what I'm excited about, which I've already acquired, I'm a big Oren Swift fan. And I think a lot of people probably know Oren Swift by what is no longer associated with the family of wines, which is their prisoner line that used to be all part of one. They sold off prisoner. That's probably most well-known, but Oren Swift has some fantastic reds in particular. And one of my favorites is Papillon, which is a Bordeaux style blend that's really outstanding, mostly cab, but a little bit of a lot of varietals in there. I've got a Magnum ready for Christmas evening. So that will be paired with short ribs. So that is my plan. I'm pumped. Very nice. Does sound amazing. Well, listen, it has been an absolute pleasure. It's been great to get to know you both as friends, as experts. We look forward to picking your brain and maybe drinking some wine together in the near future. So I wish both of you, and you, of course, Christy, but I'll be talking to you beforehand, both of you, a happy holiday season, and I hope to see you again soon. Pleasure to be here. Thank you all. Thank you all too, Christy uh, and John. Listeners, thanks for staying with us for another episode of Capital Decanton. See you soon. <laughs>